This week on the Tubu podcast, we're exploring perhaps the only topic that will be truly universally experienced by every single listener. It was also the very first taboo topic that Melanie and I covered, and we couldn't find an expert. But we have found one to revisit it 20 years later. This week on Taboo, can you feel something cold and clamming on your shoulder? That could be the hand of death. Are you having any personal problems at home? Girl, trouble, love, trouble of any kind? Uh, drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Uh, if you do them, you're bad. God is coming to you. I never thought I'd be so happy to be a virgin. Isn't that like taboo? Taboo. 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 Welcome to the podcast willing to take on any issue. You're listening to Taboo. Welcome to the Taboo podcast coming to you from the beautiful Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands surrounding Canberra and the ACT. We are so grateful to be recording and walking on this land and we wish to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm joined in the studio as always by Melanie Skinner. Hi Mel. Hello, hello. My partner in crime. <laughs> this was the... Until death do us part. A death do us part. <laughs> we, we say every... Uh, we, we've tried to say frequently, or we all say frequently on this podcast, uh, how we were amateurs 20 years ago. We, we were amateur journalists. We no experts on the topics we covered, and there's just real value in coming back and exploring them again. But this is one where maybe no one's an expert on it, yeah? Mm. I mean, we all, we all experience death at some point, uh, but until we do... Um, uh, at least firsthand, and our expert that we're going to speak to in a moment is an expert in in dealing with all aspects of death. But in terms of firsthand experience, we're all amateurs, I suppose. I think you're right. And interestingly, thinking back on our show 20 years ago, um, we hadn't experienced a lot of death, you and me, at that point. And I do recall putting a call out to people in the university community to share their stories of death because we felt like we were even more unprepared for this topic than any other. It was a very academic exercise looking back on those show notes that we covered, wasn't it? We did a lot of research into different cultures and rituals around death. And the stages of, of um, grief and dying that you go through. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We did sort of uh, approach it almost through the scientific method or sort of mm. at, at a, trying to be objective rather than experiencing it now. So so now, sadly, we have, um, as older adults, experienced death more in our lives and people close to us have, have passed away. Mm. Looking back on those show notes and reflecting now, is there anything um, you, you personally bring now to this topic, do you think, through that experience? No, I still think it's a really important topic that we should be talking about and preparing for, even though it might feel uncomfortable and you don't want to have those conversations. Um, I think the, uh, how do I put it, when when someone that you care about passes away, knowing what they would like um, and how they'd like to be remembered would be, would make the, the whole ceremony much more meaningful and important and their life celebrated. Um, so I think it's still really important to have these conversations and have them now with people that you care about. That's such a good point. And looking back on those show notes too, there were so many different aspects of death that we tried to cover, that that being among the most important, that, that ritual, uh, not just for the person who's passed away, but the people left behind as well. It feels like we might this might be a topic we need to revisit with 
with different experts at different times. It just feels like there's so much to unpack with it. I think you were speaking off air about the fact that religion tended to be quite a focus of the things we we research, but that's really only one part of it, isn't oh, but it? But also there were cultures and there are different ways that cultures um, deal with death and some far better, I think, than others. Um, but it all comes down to celebrating the person's life, uh, giving people who are left behind to have the opportunity to grieve as well. Um, it's just such a, an important topic to talk about. And as I said, we, we are trying through this podcast to revisit with the people we spoke to 20 years ago, uh, the topics that we discussed. Uh, this was this was probably the only show. Uh, we, we managed to find some friendly, put them this way, friendly experts to talk about some of our topics, such as flatulence. Uh, people, people came in, were happy to self-describe themselves as experts in that area. Uh, but this is probably the only show. It was just you and I talking. And I just feel so fortunate now we're going to have a conversation with somebody who's made their life's passion really breaking down the taboo of death. So it's really exciting this week on Taboo to talk to Rebecca Lyons. So Rebecca is a passionate advocate for having the conversation about death and dying. And Becky, we really want to talk to you about all the various hats and experiences you've had in this area, being a doula, a Churchill Fellow, funeral director and uh, president of the Natural Death Advocacy Network. But uh, we might start by playing some embarrassing audio from what we talked about regarding death 20 years ago and then come and get some insights from you as a real expert. Sorry, why is death a taboo, Mel? Well, everyone goes through it. Everybody shares it, but nobody ever wants to talk about it. It's one of those scary issues which we're always on about. We always, we're always afraid of going there. So we thought we get it out in the open so it becomes less scary. And what brought us to talk about it? Well, it was actually, I think, a quote which brought us to it. Death is psychologically as important as birth. Shrinking away from it is something unhealthy and abnormal, which robs the second half of life of its purpose. Says sort of all of it, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? We're pretty good at the quotes so far this week. <laughs> and yeah, it's something that, as Mel said, we all do share. It's, it's the one thing that every single human being shares. I think it's one of the least talked about issues. What happens when we die? You never know when it's going to happen, so you might you as don't. well deal with that, it now. I think that's the thing that doesn't get talked about at all. Like you can all you can all hypothesise about you know in when I'm 80 years old this is going to happen, or when it finally when my end finally comes this is going to happen. No one speaks about it as if it's going to happen in the next five minutes, which it could. Mm. And that's the scary thing about it, I think. Definitely. We've got some questions for the listeners if they want to give us a call on six two zero one five two nine one. Well, the first question would be: What do you personally personally believe happens to us when we die? It's a good question. And in and on next week's show, we'll be looking at uh, what different religions and non-religious groups believe happens when we die. Everything from uh, the existential people that believe that nothing happens when we die, we simply turn to dust, uh, to say the uh, the Catholics who believe that we go to heaven or hell depending on how we've behaved on earth. Yes. Uh, the second question would be, have you put together a belief system of your own? Which, which I know we, I have. <laughs> I think a lot of people do that. They, yeah. they pick and choose the stuff they've heard and see they might believe in karma mm-hmm. and they might believe in heaven. It's a, a mixture of things mixture, of yeah. other beliefs. What you believe. Good. And another question that we have to offer is, does your opi- opinion differ if the person has committed suicide? Yeah, that's a that's tough one. And it's one that a lot of the religions deal with, that, yeah. that different circumstances happen. Uh, if you're a sinner or if you committed suicide, they're kind of two different categories. Everybody. 
Amel, we had some callers during that musical break. We sure did. Justin gave us a call talking about how he is a Christian or a Catholic, uh, has always been brought up in that sort of society, and a Mormons came to his door one day and came in and chatted with him, and he actually questioned that there's so many religions out there, which one's actually right? Right, yep. So he came up with his own personal belief system, which is if you're true to yourself and your own morals, then you're going to be fine. And you believe in God and love God and yourself, then that's as much a religion that you need. And that was brought about by his interaction with another religion which differed from his the own. beliefs he had already yeah. had. So at the time it was one of those um, topics where we were looking for an expert in, in death to have the conversation with us and we were unable to find someone at the time. And it, it sounds like you've got... Um, a long history in this space. I'd be keen to hear your experiences that led you on this journey. I started out just as a run-of-the-mill funeral home worker. I started out in an admin position and I made it really clear from the start that if I was going to work in this capacity, I wanted to learn everything. Uh, and, and I did. I jumped around. So I worked in admin and then I was funeral arranging and then I was doing prepaid funerals and then I went to funeral directing, then I got into logistics and operational stuff. I worked in mortuary. I learned how to, you know, process ashes. So I, I did a whole range of things. And then in about 2016, Dying to Know Day had launched a few years before that, the Groundswell Movement. And I'd met Kerry Noonan earlier that year. She's the lady that sort of started it. Um, and I'd, I'd met her and, and I'd been talking to my partner and we sat and we had this conversation and went, do you know what? It's amazing the amount of people who walk through the door of a funeral home and don't have a clue what to do. They, they don't know what questions to ask. They don't know what is or isn't possible. And because they're not asking the right questions, they're not necessarily getting the best answers mm -hmm. either. And so... We sort of very naively went, well, let's start a talk, a talk group. So um, death cafes weren't a thing back then. They were, but no one out here had heard of them. And so well, I said, let's just bring people together to get them to ask questions. Put two funeral directors in a room and go, come and ask all your questions. And so that's what we did in, that was August 2016. And... You know, a series of things happened and by May 2017, I was made redundant from my position in the funeral home and we went, oh, okay, maybe there's something to this. <laughs> and that's, so that's how it started. The universe, universe was telling you, the universe was saying time to dive yeah, in. Yeah, and so we went, okay, well, let's go on holiday. And so we went to the UK and we interviewed natural burial ground owners and learned what the, what was happening in the UK for natural burial, came back here and went, I think there's an opportunity to do things differently. As I said at the start, you, you wear really many hats. Maybe we'll start with the, the term doula, the end of life doula. I mean, that's a, that's a concept um, probably known uh, in the community more for the beginning of life. So what's the, what's the role for an end of life doula? The doula is actually a Greek word. It means woman of service. And it was traditionally the people that ushered in or out life. They're not, they're non-medical and they're non-clinical, but they're an asset in the space in that they can support the person who's dying. 
they can vigil, they can support the family, they can do planning, logistics, coordination. You know, there's research out of Western Sydney University now that says it takes about 16 people to support someone without care or burnout who wants to die at home. And and so the doula will go, okay, where's my 16? How does that look? Who's going to, you know, collect the mail and take the kids for a walk and feed the dog and and all of that stuff that has to, all the life stuff that has to happen mm. around someone who's dying. Um, and then they do legacy work as well. So, you know, a lot of a lot of the doula's work can be, what do you want to leave? Like, you know, there's, there's the things the things that go into a will, and that's the things of, of monetary value. But then, what do you do with your great grandmother's recipes, or the tools in the sheds, or you know? So there's a lot of legacy planning that can come at end of life that a doula can be involved in as well. Yeah, so there seems to be a logistic side and then a ritual side and then a life side, I guess, to the, the yeah. dying conversation that needs to happen. And in your experience then as a, a funeral director, do you think um, they were good at doing certain aspects of those that um, work? I think as a society we've improved a lot in in the before death space. So a lot of people, you know, just over 50% of Australians now have a will, which is not a great figure, but it's better than it was. You know, we, we're pretty good at talking about enduring guardians and powers of attorney. And, you know, it's now some state lawyers are actually being told, if they're estate lawyers, that if they do an estate plan and a will for someone, they have to talk about advanced care directives as well. So, you know, there's we're getting really good at building agency into the pre-death stuff. And, and learning out, learning about how we can support our people who are going to be our substitute decision makers and how to appoint these people and, and what, what that all means. And I think the voluntary assisted dying conversation has actually helped that along as well. Um, but then we get to death and it's like, oh, call a funeral director. Mm-hmm. Like there's it, it, just nothing. And, and the, the disempowerment actually starts probably before death because if someone you know we, we know that 70% of people say they want to die at home about 14% across Australia achieve that and so we know that you know you get to a point where if you're in hospital or hospice or a palliative care ward there will or even if when you go into a nursing home there's usually a question that someone will ask you about when the time comes which funeral director do we call and that's mm-hmm. the moment of disempowerment. That's the first time mm-hmm. that a family's told implicitly that's what you have to do. And so, you know, that that's where people, that, that shuts off any thought around anything else that would actually be possible. It's like, oh, we have to nominate a funeral director, so that's what we'll do. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think we're getting really good at the pre-death stuff, but then the after-death stuff, we got a lot of work to do, people. So that probably segues in some ways to your Churchill Fellowship, uh, where you travelled overseas, and 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 it and it sounds from what you're saying that in Australia and the Western world, um, the pathway is the funeral director pathway. And then, as you say, you're you're disempowered in some ways. You're on that pathway. So, um, could you talk to us a little bit about what you learned on a Churchill Fellowship? Because I think part of that was looking at the, at alternatives and and different ways to approach some of those issues. My Churchill Fellowship's really in two parts. I looked at alternative body disposal technologies, so how we're actually 
doing the mechanics of body disposal. And then I looked at alternatives to ritual and ceremony and ways, different ways that we can um, better the grief and bereavement outcome. So, and, and those two things are, are, are distinct, but they do tie in together. And, you know, what, what I found overwhelmingly was a lot of the things that are coming out now are actually melding the two together because it's involving family and community in the doing for their person. So things like family-led funerals, things like community death care, things that are, you know, where people gather to wash and dress the body of their person. It's things that the funeral industry has sort of taken over in the last 120 years. But mm. there's a real reclamation happening where people are going, actually, up until 120 years ago, this was community knowledge. This was stuff that we did for each other. We, we freely undertook this, this you know, ritual and this rite and, and we supported each other through it. And so there is, there is this thing now where people are, are saying, let's, let's actually do it ourselves. Yes, there's emotional benefits. Yes, there's financial benefits. You know, the DIY mm -hmm. approach is going to be cheaper. But there's also these kind of social benefits because you create a community of people who feel like they have achieved something really special and unique and in our in our western way of, of doing funeral which has become like this two-hour time slot at a chapel um you know with a cup of tea afterwards and three pieces of music and, and da, 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 da. so you know people go away from that and their grief hasn't been served but they dissipate when you gather people together to care for the body of someone who's died they don't go away after that because it's like this bond that's created. And so I found I found that people over and again talking about that in terms of their ritual and ceremony. And then I saw it in Mexico as well. So I went to Mexico for Dia de los Muertos and they, they have in Mexico and have had for centuries what we're trying to create now. In, in the Western world, they just have this beautiful system of social care, which is not a system in any definable way, it's just their culture, which, you know, was fascinating and beautiful. So interesting as a, as a Western person, I, I, I have, um, I think, subconsciously separated the d disposal of the body, if I can describe it that way, the, the mechanics of that from from the ritual but it's so fascinating here you say in in other cultures those two things are intrinsically linked because we need we need the ritual um, and participation with the body to, to properly grieve that seems to be one of the things that we're really the, the funeral home does the does the mechanics if you like the practicalities and then the if you are religious then your your church may do this the ritual uh, and otherwise, you might have some ritual added on to the to the um, some sort of service, as you say, two hours with some sandwiches. It's really fascinating to hear your insights into how those two things need to be relinked again. Yeah, they do. And, and look, there's an amazing woman is here in Talandi, and she she actually says that funeral is kind of the ritual that allows you to be okay mm. with a body being buried or burnt. Because the mechanics of body disposal, no matter what it is, it, it's not pretty, right? Mm. 
you know, if you think too hard about what happens when a body decomposes or when it's burnt or like, you know, there's you need to get to a point where you're okay with that happening to someone you love. And and the funeral is the ritual around which all all of that where you get to you get to filter through it and become okay with it in your head and then you get to weave your grief and and your bereavement around it as well. And so the funeral is actually really important and that's why this idea of funeral poverty is is so alarming because people are getting priced out of the ritual. It's it's adding trauma to grief. And we've seen now the DSM-5 has actually added complicated grief as a mental health like condition. So, you know, we're getting a, a lot more grief, like negative grief and bereavement outcomes. And I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that the ritual is not supporting them the way it needs to. So I'd be I'd keen to hear more about the funeral poverty, yeah. Funeral poverty. Yeah, so it's a, it's a t- term I don't know where it's been coined, but it was highlighted in a report that Professor Sarah Vanderlan, her name was, I think, did from, she's a University of Business, University of Sydney School of Business. And she did a report in 2017 called It's Your Funeral. And she basically looked at all the Ibis World reports about how much money's in the funeral industry. And, and she looked at, um, what the trends are in the industry and what we're seeing is the rise of direct cremation or no service, no attendance cremation where there is no ceremony or ritual. Um, and and a lot of it is a financial a financial drive, drive behind it. You know, there are, some, there are some places where you go, can you just pick my body up, cremate my body and, and return my ashes? And they're charging over six grand for it. Others are three. You know, there's a, a massive price difference in the same service. Uh, but, you know, for some people, they just can't afford it. And we don't have the space in Australia yet for the not for, like, you know, you've got tender funerals, which is an amazing not-for-profit kind of charity funeral service. But they're, all, they're one of the only ones. Like, there's not a lot changing up the industry at the moment to make these rituals accessible for people. And there has been some issues around funeral insurance, yeah, people being sold multiple insurance policies and and them not even covering, in the end, the cost of the funeral either. Yeah, and look, when I was working in the big industry, um, I saw the effects of it. I saw people who thought they had $10,000 policies and they'd missed the payment by, you know, four days, you know, six years ago or something ridiculous and and so their their price has gone back to zero and started again and so they only got half of what they they thought i've seen policies not get paid out because there's been a discrepancy with a name spelling like you know there's all of this stuff funeral insurance can work well but you do end up paying like the longer you have it you're going to end up paying for your funeral over and over again but I think for those people who um, take on that insurance, it's about them trying to help their loved ones who are left yeah. to make these decisions and don't want a burden on them. Uh, and I guess in some ways, in the same way as having a will and being prepared for death in that way, this is uh, another way that people are preparing for their own um, yeah, end of days. No, this, this is the thing. So, you know, all banks will release money 
for the cost of a funeral account before any probate application is even made. So if you have a bill from a funeral home with on a funeral home letterhead, the bank will re- so if you have an account as someone who's dying, you have an account and you call the account for my funeral and you put money in there, the bank will al- allow access to that money to pay a funeral account. So you know that that can also be a really simple way without paying insurance premiums that you can have money aside. It seems during the Churchill Fellowship, you, you, you um, bearing in mind your point earlier about integrating um, the sort of practical questions with the ritualistic questions, it did seem like there was a number of initiatives you're seeing in places like the United States and Sweden uh, where that cost issue was sort of um, assisting looking at alternative means that may also have had other benefits around ritual. But are you able to talk to us through about some of those sort of innovative ideas of looking at more cost-effective Options. Yeah, natural burial is probably going to be the game changer in a lot of ways in Australia. Um, and we're starting to see it introduced here in existing cemeteries and standalone cemeteries for natural burial are, are under development. But the premise of natural burial is that you're buried in a shallow depth grave, so you only need a metre of soil between the top of the body and the top of the earth. You have no chemical involvement as, as much as possible and practical so no chemical washes no plastic eye certs under the eyes no stitching of the mouth packing of throats or, or noses um, you, the body is only wearing natural fibers so ideally protein-based fibers so silk or wool um, otherwise plant-based so hemp cotton or linen um, and then the body is placed without a coffin in, in the shallow grave. There's compost material and, and things included in the back filling of that grave. And then you're left in, in either an unmarked or with a natural marker in that grave to decompose. So the idea in terms of financial is that natural burial graves should always be cheaper than standard graves because no ongoing maintenance. If we're talking about... We're talking about either bush regeneration or we're talking about ongoing agricultural value of the land. So there are some places in the UK that farmers are doing natural burial in their paddocks where they're grazing sheep, cutting hay, they're having bees, (laughs) they're planting fruit trees. There's other places that are doing regeneration work. So for every grave, they're planting native trees to that area and so the idea is that the bush will will be reclaimed and and regrow over those sites. So you, you're not cutting manicured lawns, you're not maintaining concrete ledges and marble headstones and and all of that stuff. So the cost for burial should actually be cheaper. And is that an option in Australia at the moment? We're seeing some natural burial places open up inside existing traditional cemeteries. We are actually at Endan, we are developing now the Australian standards for what natural burial is going to look like here. And I'm actually working with a couple of people who are developing standalone natural burial grounds, which will be the first Australia has. But, you know, they, they've got a really heavy focus on conservation. So the, the point of natural burial is to return the body to the earth in the most ecologically friendly manner possible, but in a way that will be sustainable for the conservation of, of the area as well. So moving to your advocacy service, you and Taboo, I feel I feel like you've probably 
uh, already given us a, a sense of what it's about. I mean, it's so fitting that that you're on this show in some ways with a name like that. So it it obviously began because you, um, much like us, felt like death was a was a taboo. Can you tell us a bit about that service? And I suppose what you're trying to do is is destigmatize that taboo. Yeah. So I do a you and taboo does a lot of stuff, and it's changed over the years. So we started. We had this great idea that if we just hosted a, a morning, people would come. And they would talk. And, you know, the first one we had like 19 people. It was great. And then the second time it was like six or something. We're like, oh. And and we realised really quickly that asking people to show up every month for death was never going to happen. And so we had to take the conversation out to the public. And so we started doing... We do, you know, the wellness expo. We've done, we did the Hobart show, four days of the Hobart show with a coffin, going, come and get in the coffin and have your photo <laughs> taken, right? Um, <laughs> we've done, and, That's great. Yeah, and so we do a lot of the, that kind of engagement. We do the Eco Fest every year. Last year was our first year, and we do all sorts of stuff, and then public talks and public engagement. So, you know, everything from Lions Club, U3A, you know, senior citizens, we do a lot of, of talking. I run workshops and then I work with the um, ANMF have a, a an education branch where they train enrolled nurses and so I do CPD training around Tasmania as well for, for nurses every year on non-medical approaches to death and dying. So you and Taboo does a lot of education these days. Sorry, we do like a five-hour workshop and in that we cover death literacy, we cover um, the mentality of language around dying, so the, the, the battle language that, that gets used and what that does. We cover doula, we cover home funeral, natural burial, the disruptions, things like alkaline hydrolysis and human composting and, and all of that stuff in, in like this tight five-hour workshop. And so the sessions that you did at the Hobart show and oh, with Lions Club and those, is that about people thinking about their own death or is that about them still preparing for other people in their lives or both? Both. both. So usually if I'm talking mm. to groups like Lions or Probus or something, they want more practical information. That you know they, They're not so interested in, the human composting that's happening overseas or, you know, you let it, you let younger people go, oh, my God, that's fantastic, tell me about that. But people who are, you know, in the senior citizens groups and, and things like that, they just want to know what's it going to cost, how's it going to work, mm-hmm. what's, it, what's it going to mean. And and so I do stuff around wills and enduring guardian power of attorney, get, getting your stuff together as well. And then how does it translate, like, what is actually the process when someone dies? And, and what, what's the paperwork involved? What are you required to do? What are your cost options? All of that sort of stuff. So we go into the more mechanic side of it. Do you see many people planning their own rituals? Yeah, increasingly, absolutely. And I think, mm. it's, I think it's really important because one of the things I've learned over the years is that grief is an emotion that needs something to do. And what we've done is we've given away so much of the stuff there is to do. And so family family funerals, for example, people who want to plan or have the body at home, keep the body at home, do the, 
you know, paperwork themselves and, and care for the body themselves. There is a lot more work to do than just calling a funeral home mm-hmm. because the funeral directors will do everything for you. Mm-hmm. But but your grief is different when you're doing. When the last thing you do for your person is an act of service, that's a fundamentally different position to grieve from. So we are seeing people who are having planning living wake, so turning their, you know, 70th birthday party into a funeral, um, <laughs> complete with coffins. Mm-hmm. We are seeing people who are, you know, writing their own eulogies and and taking control of telling the na- like being in control of the narrative of their own life story. And and that can start long before death. So do you think death is still a taboo topic then, in light of that? Is it changing? I think it's changing and I think it's being I think we're being forced to change by a lot of things that are happening external to it in society. The VAD debate has been, you know, this this incredible kind of platform nationally where we've had to think about death and suffering and what what is intolerable and what you know I don't know many people who haven't seriously thought about the VAD thing and gone and, and not equated it to well what if that was me or what if that was my mum and so we are being asked I think now to have some really meaningful dialogue and and give some consideration to stuff that for a lot mm. of us 20 years ago was just, oh, we don't need to worry about that at all, you know. Dying, that's not for another 60 years. I think that's so true because you you look at, yeah, 20 years ago we had the federal parliament preventing the Northern Territory and the ACT even thinking about um, euthanasia or voluntary assisted dying laws and now um, just recently that that's that's preve- that prevention, that block's been taken away but partly because a number of other jurisdictions uh, have have now done that. Have now, uh, the very thing that the Commonwealth was worried about, the Northern Territory or the ACD doing, has has just happened in, in those other jurisdictions. Uh, it, and now that block's been removed, and those jurisdictions will probably follow suit. And you feel like it'll probably be not too long where every jurisdiction in Australia um, has decided that it's appropriate to have those laws. Yeah, and I think it's it's a really interesting point. I think you're right. I think we will get to every every jurisdiction in Australia will have it, and we'll see the. It'll be a bit of a movable landscape for a little while, I think. So, you know, at the moment, you know, if you get approval for VAD in a certain state, it has to happen in that state. Whereas down in the future, we might see, you know, someone gets approval in Tasmania, but their family lives in the Northern Territory. And so they're going to take the drug and travel to the Northern Territory. And it won't be considered importing a, you know, a schedule, whatever drug. So, so I think, I think we will see a lot of shifts and changes happen in, in the years to come and and for the better in my opinion. I think you've talked about the standard that's been developed and that might be part of your work as president of the Natural Death Advocacy Network, yeah. is that right? Can you tell us a little bit more about what that network does? NDAN started years ago and it was uh, the lady I told you about, Dr. Pierre Landy. she kicked it off. So she'd done natural burial in the UK and came back to Australia to, to try and change up the conversation here and she did it back when there was no one talking about death on a public scale. And Dan was kind of the first entity that that held those conversations and held that space in the community. And the idea has always been to promote natural ends 
and natural methods of body disposal and particularly natural burial and to start growing the conversation and the groundswell support for it to, to take place here. And what we're seeing now is the culmination of a lot of that work where people are starting to go, okay, you know, mainstream cemeteries are now going, you know that piece of land where we can't knock down those trees, let's turn it into a natural burial ground and sell a few pots. And, you know, so you've got mainstream cemeteries now coming to the table to talk about natural burial and to go, well, let's just open, let's just offer it as another option. And so I've been talking this year to some big cemetery managements about the standards that we're trying to, to set because we don't, it's starting to grow rapidly and we don't have any one standard document about this is natural burial. Mm -hmm. And I'm really keen not to see it diluted with a lot of greenwashing. So I, I said to Endan what, what I think, what I feel like we need to do the next 24 months, 12 to 24 months is really put on paper. Like we've done... We've put out there, this is what natural burial is, and we've made statements about things like that. But now we need a set of compliance documents. And so we're, we're creating a new form of membership for Endan, which will be for natural burial ground owners. And, and so the grounds themselves can then become members. They'll get, you know, they'll agree to a, a set of values and a set of operational guidelines. They'll get our tick of approval. We can then promote them, and 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 very similar to the way it's done in the UK, and it it is being developed alongside some people from the UK and the USA. So the Green Burial Council in America, we're very very lucky to have the guy that started that living here now in Australia, and so we're yes, Lee, we will hold that accreditation standard very soon. The other part of my work and what I do is I run a thing called the Australian Home Funeral Alliance. And so while we're doing what we do with natural burial, we're also doing it with home funerals. And and so that's only recently had a um, charity approval. So we're now operating as a charity. And the idea will be to roll out across the country um, home funeral education, offering alternatives to people who might want to not use the big industry or might want to engage with professionals on their own terms rather than use a, a start to finish a paddock to plate style service through the industry. And so we're trying to build that death literacy on a home funeral front for, for Australians. It's so interesting to me, doula and, and home, we have home doulas and home births. It, it seems about time we were talking about um, home death and, and doulas in that space too. How easy is it for someone to do that? Are there regulations or laws that, that make that difficult for somebody who wants to sort of manage the entire process themselves? There, there are, and it's different in every state. And so we've just launched a bunch of resources on our on the website for the Home Funeral Alliance. And you can actually go there and click on your state um, or territory and, and get the regulations for that area. Um, there's only, we're still building it. We, we don't have anyone to have done Canberra yet. We don't have anyone to have done the Northern Territory, but they're the only two missing. Um, every, everything else is there and, and it's a, it's a growing, a growing body of resources, but it, it is possible. You know, there's, there's nuances. In New South Wales, you can only have the body in your home for five days before it needs to be buried, burnt or refrigerated. 
you know, in Tasmania, there's no time limit. You can have the person as long as you want, you know, and, until it becomes injurious to public health is the wording in, in the legislation. Um, so, so you know, it, it does it does change from place to place. But you can do it in every state or territory of Australia, you can do some level of home funeral and you can have some level of family-directed care, community-centred care, and, and that's that's what it's about. People just need to know. And as soon as you explain that to people, they're like, ah, oh, I get it. But they just never knew it was possible. So I'm going to finish up just noting that in your Churchill Fellowship, you said we sit on a threshold in Australia in the change relationship to dying and death in the Western world. That's what we've spoken about tonight. And there's a movement to increase death literacy both on an individual and community level to enhance community capacity and social capacity, reclaim agency and how we care for our dead. And that, that's really been uh, the, the centre of what you've talked about tonight. So if we were to come back here in 20 years and be talking on a program called Taboo, um, natural burial by the sound of things would be the norm, um, that we'd all be having these really important discussions. We'd have our rituals reconnected the way they should be. So what would be the next Taboo that you'd be tackling if, when we come back to talk to you in 20 years' time? Uh what would be the next to I don't know. I'm hoping it's do you want a funeral director or not? I'm hoping it's you want cremation, water or flame. You want burial, traditional or natural. Do you want I'm I'm hoping that we have that many options at end of life. And I think that's enough for me. That'll be my life's work. <laughs> I don't think I've got room for another taboo. I guess one question we're asking everybody is what do you think the next taboo that we should talk about i think there is there is something that needs to happen around aged care and shaking up aged care and that's you know we have an aging population and we have at the moment a really uh, like we have 310 palliative specialist palliative care doctors in the country there's only uh, just over 3,000 nurses and for the aging population and and the death rates that are being predicted it's not enough and then you take that out and you go, okay, we're also the people who were home birthing 20, 30 years ago who are now starting to think about dying and, and doing the home death and, the, you know, they had doulas for birth and now they'll have doulas for death and, and all of that. But what's their aged care going to look like? What does sex look like in a nursing home? Like all of this stuff, all of these conversations are not being had. There are... There are, you know, sex workers being employed to go into nursing homes where families are having to provide locks for doors because it's against policy and you've got husbands and wives that aren't allowed to have the same room together and, you know, there's all of this talk about, you know, agency and we're building it into our paperwork but what does it look like on the ground? What are the baby boomers going to have for the end of life aged care and how we need to reimagine what that's going to look like. And I think that's the taboo not a lot of people are talking about at the moment. Taboo is written and produced by me, Sean Costello, and the amazing Melanie Skinner. You can reach us for feedback, questions, advice, or ideas for future taboo concepts we should cover via email. Taboo, T W O B O podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Or otherwise, we're Taboo Podcast. Don't forget the TWO on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. We're back soon with another episode of Taboo.